This morning we're starting a brand new series called Miraculous Births, and so uh, over the next couple of weeks we're going to talk about a couple of different uh, birth stories that take place in the Bible, some in the Old Testament, and then obviously we're going to talk about the birth of Jesus. I mean, it's Christmas after all, and so we will get to that. But today we're going to be in the Old Testament, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip over to 1 Samuel, and we're going to be at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, chapter 1. On December the 1st, 1863, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow sat down to a quiet dinner with his children in his home near Cambridge, Massachusetts. Henry had been widowed in a tragic accident two years prior to this where his wife uh, his wife's dress caught on fire. He, he woke from a nap to her screams and he rushed to her and, and tried to put out the flames first with a rug and then with his own body, but it was, it was just too late. She died from severe burns the next day. Henry's facial burns were so bad that he was unable to attend his wife's own funeral and then he later grew a beard to hide the scars from, it, from the burns. And then he was just so grief-stricken that he was, he was really just kind of a recluse because he was so worried that he'd be put into an insane asylum because of his grief. Earlier that spring in 1863, his oldest son Charlie had enlisted as a private with the 1st Massachusetts Artillery. He had advanced quickly to, to the rank of 2nd Lieutenant. And so far he had survived, but on this night in early December, a telegram, telegram came in. Charlie had been severely wounded four days earlier in a battle. A bullet had traveled across his back and narrowly missed his spine, and he was being transferred to Washington, D.C. Immediately, Henry and his youngest son uh, boarded a train, and they went to Washington, D.C., and they arrived there on December the 3rd to visit Charlie. Charlie would arrive a couple of days later and would be rushed immediately into surgery, and surgeons would work on him for, for hours, and the report was not good. In fact, the surgeons told uh, Henry Longfellow that his son would would most likely be paralyzed, that he would never walk again. Later, the, the, the prognosis got a little bit better, but they said, you know, it's still going to be a long recovery. You're looking at six months to a year before there's any sort of semblance of normalcy. And that was the situation that Henry Longfellow found himself in on Christmas Day in 1863. A 57-year-old widower, stricken with grief, the father of six children, the oldest whom uh, could be paralyzed for the rest of his life, and as his country fought a war against itself, he heard Christmas bells ring and he heard carolers sing, Peace on Earth. And he thought about how all the injustice and the violence and the suffering around the world that was taking place around the world around him seemed to mock that idea. And so he sat down and he wrote this poem. He, he penned, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I wonder if any of us could at least partially identify with Henry Longfellow. As, as you look around the country, as you look around the circumstances that might be in your own life, as you just look at, at the hardships and troubles that everybody faces every day, it, it's hard to see what the festivities of, of the Christmas season have to do with, with all of your troubles and your fears. It almost seems like it's a mockery. For many people, the goal this Christmas season will be simply just to, to survive it, just to get through another Christmas season. 
And even for those who look forward to, to Christmas, I, I don't know about you, but there are a lot of people who, who this is their favorite time of the year. And even them, they, they just, it's, we just got to get through it. They know it's, it's a passing and fleeting thing very soon. The festivities will be over. I don't know about you, but my calendar is jam-packed in the month of December. But man, it opens up in January. The, the, the festivities, they'll, 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 they'll be gone. Families will, will gather and then they'll go back apart and then we'll just get back to the daily grind of daily living. And the Bible is not oblivious to our troubles. It's not oblivious to, to, our, to the heartache that we have in our lives. In fact, the Bible is refreshingly honest about them. And in the midst of all of our troubles, when all hope seems, seems lost, when all hope seems gone, gone, that is when God seems to carry out His purposes the best. In the book of 1 Samuel, that's where we're going to be today in the Scriptures. It begins around the time of the Judges. The, the story that we see here in 1 Samuel 1, it would have overlapped with the time of Samson, which we're going to talk about next, next week. Uh, and, and this period of time is when Israel was living more or less contently under Philistine oppression. But that's just kind of the backdrop. 1 Samuel 1, it, the, it gives us a story of a woman. It zooms in on her story, a woman named Hannah. And all of her troubles and her heartaches. And this story is a great reminder that as small and as hidden and as broken as you may feel, you are not too small. You are not too hidden. You are not too broken for God. And we all come with troubles this morning. Everybody has troubles. Everybody has heartaches. Everybody has circumstances that they wish that they could change. So let's look at those in light of what God's Word has to say. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to start at the very first verse. We're going to read the first uh, eight verses to start with. It says this, There was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zuphite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeraham, the son of Elahu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, and Ephraimite. I'm glad those names aren't repeated, okay? Uh, Elkanah had two wives, one called Hannah and the other Penanai. Penanai had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were the priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penanai, and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and she could not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more than you, more to you than ten sons? Now this story begins by focusing in on, on the family of Elkanah. And we don't know a whole lot about uh, the region that he's from. We really don't know much about the genealogy other than the names that are listed here, but we we can gather from this that he comes from a pretty respected family. And the story would indicate that he's a pretty devout man as well. He's, he's committed to the vows and to the religious uh, commitments he's made. And so every year he travels to Shiloh to, to worship at the tabernacle with his family. And so not only does he seem to be pretty um, devout, but he also seems to be at least fairly successful. He's able to travel, he's able to offer sacrifices, and to feast with his family every year. This wouldn't be, be no small expense. And he's even able to afford two wives. And I say that kind of jokingly, because, I mean, you've got to have money, I guess, to afford two wives. I can barely afford one. Um, but how did Elkanah come to have two wives? 
Well, we don't know exactly. But another way to understand verse 2 might be this, to say that he had two wives. The first was called Hannah, and the second was called Peninnah. It's possible that Elkanah had first married Hannah. And then because she was not able to produce children, he married uh, Peninnah. And so she, because they want to have kids. For a rich man in, in that culture, in that time frame, to not have an heir would be to see all of your land, to see all of your family fortune, be forever lost to the family name. Clearly in verse 1, Elkanah had, had inherited a rich legacy. He, he's well-to-do, and he wants to see that passed on from generation to generation to generation. And so as the years go on, and, and Hannah's not able to provide any children, she's not able to have children, that they begin to despair. And so Elkanah took on a second wife. Now, I don't know, we don't know if this was her idea, his idea or if this was Hannah's idea. Maybe like Sarah and Abraham. You remember that story back in Genesis when Sarah and Abraham are, are together and Sarah's old in her age and not able to have any children. What does she do? She says, hey, Abraham, why don't you take my maidservant, Hagar, and, and why don't you have a child with her? We don't, we don't know whose idea it was. But for Hannah, this would have been a source of deep sorrow and, and, and shame. As in every culture in that time, to not be able to bear children was, was a sorrow that, that would have struck to the very core of her being. It would, it would have struck to, to her identity, to who she was. And even though polygamy would, might have been a culturally accepted practice, it was never God's plan. Okay, It, it was never God's plan. It, w- there are a lot of things that become culturally accepted that are never a part of God's plan. And God's plan for marriage was never multiple wives. God's plan for marriage from the very beginning has always been one man, one wife. And any time you step outside of, of that boundary, any time you step outside of that prescription for, for marriage, it always wreaks havoc. There, there's always discontent and there's always conflict that comes from that. And this situation was no different. So Peninnah is able to bear children, and so Elkanah has many heirs now. But Hannah, she doesn't have any children. And just as Hagar would end up despising Sarah, Peninnah begins to do the same to Hannah. And it would all come to, to, to a culmination. It would all come to a head during their yearly trip to Shiloh at, at the family feast where, where the family would partake in this sacrifice and celebrate this covenant relationship that they had with the God of Israel. And as Elkanah distributes the portions of meat, he gives a, a portion to Peninnah and to each of her children. But then he would deliberately give Hannah a double portion because it says he loved her. I think it might have been too that he was probably grief stricken or conscious stricken because of the role that he played in Hannah's grief. As Peninnah watched this play out, she would, she would irritate Hannah. She would provoke her. She would just let her have it. I, I mean, I imagine that you know, you get multiple women and women, I, I mean this in the least offensive way possible, okay? But when, when you get multiple women together in small confines, inevitably there's some cattiness that starts to come out and takes place. And, and I'm just, it's, it's true, you can be mad about it, but it's true. And this situation was probably no different. Can you imagine the conversations that probably happened around the dinner table with, with Hannah and Penn and I and their kids? You know, it might have gone something like this, you know, Penn and I is getting the, the meal distributed to her, to her kids and saying, all right, children, you have all your food? The, man, there's just, so, just so many of you, it's hard to keep track. Hannah, could you give me a hand, Hannah? Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any kids. Miss Hannah, oh yeah, that's right, yeah, she doesn't have any children. Do, well, does she want children? Well, yeah, she wants children very much. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? You, you want kids, right? Don't, don't you wish you had children too? Oh, 
doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids? Oh, certainly Daddy wants Miss Hannah to have kids. She, she just keeps disappointing him because she can't have kids. Well, well, why not? Well, because God won't let her. Well, does God not like Miss Hannah? Well, I don't, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, oh, by the way, Hannah, did I tell you I was pregnant again? You think you'll ever get pregnant, Hannah? I, as a second wife, Penn and I, she was kind of suffering herself an injustice. But, but the passage is clear that she used God's blessing on her life to provoke and, and irritate Hannah to tears so, so that she couldn't even eat. This covenant meal that they would celebrate, it's a, it's a cause for a, a celebration and worship. Instead, they come. it became an annual reminder for Hannah of her barrenness and her sorrow. And Elkanah, well, he wasn't much help. I, I think he probably meant well, but, but in verse 8, he, he finds himself in a spot that I think a lot of husbands find themselves in, just kind of clueless. Uh, he, he wants to solve the problem. So, hey, if, if I just give you more stuff, right, it, it'll, it'll take care of the problem. If I just give you more and more, and, and it, it'll, it'll make you happier, right? It, it'll fulfill the desire that, that you really want, right? No. Men, how often have we been guilty that we've, we've upset our wives, and so instead of just apologizing or whatever, we think, okay, we'll just give, her, give them stuff, right? We'll get them flowers, give them flowers. If that doesn't work, you know, if you do really bad, maybe you have to buy jewelry. Um, hope you don't do that very often guys that's not cheap but and and marriage counseling won't fix that either okay so um but Elkanah's just he's not much help man sometimes it's better to just sit and be quiet and grieve with your wife not try to solve the problem but just sit and grieve with them Hannah's situation is desperate. She, she's desperate. Her body has betrayed her. Her rival, Penanah, she's blessed, and she's using all of that against her. And her husband, he can't do anything about it and only makes things worse. And there just seems to be no way out for her. I wonder if anybody identifies with Hannah in that way. They just they feel like there's no way out, that, that everything just keeps piling on, and it just gets worse and worse and worse, and everybody around you seems to be living their best life. And yet at the bottom of all of this is God. And that's where the narrator repeats for us in verses 5 and 6. He says, the Lord has closed her womb. All of Hannah's troubles, all of them, can be traced to the sovereignty of God. After all, it is the Lord who's closing Hannah's womb. And and it's the Lord doing this that has has led to this rivalry, to these miserable meals, meals to Hannah's deep sorrow. And as a worshiper of the Lord, Hannah would have known this. She would have understood this. She, she would have believed in God's reign over all of the universe, even her life. But, but what did that mean? Does that mean that God hates Hannah? That God loved Pen and I more than he loved Hannah? Was he out to get her? Had Hannah done something wrong that was causing all of this? Clearly, Hannah's troubles belonged to God. But as we're going to see in just a few moments, far from this being a source of despair, it's this truth that is her best hope. And it's our best hope as well. What this passage highlights is is the truth that God is sovereign over everything that happens in our lives. Even our troubles. Even our heartaches. Even our conflicts. And and people struggle with this idea because the troubles that we face in this world, let's be honest, this world is not an easy place to live. This place is full of heartache and, and, and the troubles that we face can be horrific. And the Bible doesn't deny any of that. And yet scripture is also very clear that God can superintend the evils in our lives even while remaining perfectly pure and holy and righteous and even while people are still responsible for the evil that they commit. 
It is the fact that God reigns over the evil in this world that assures us that God is able to use even human evil and suffering to accomplish His purposes. Yes, there is horrific evil and suffering in the world. And you don't need me to tell you that. All you got to do is turn the news on. But none of that, none of it, is outside of God's perfect control. None of it is outside of God's vision. None of it has caught God by surprise. When evil, when loss, when sickness, when, when disasters happen in our lives, it is not because God has been defeated, uh, that His purposes have been defeated, that He's been railroaded by Satan. No, not at all. Our troubles belong to God. And we need to know this, because if that's true, then the suffering of our lives is not beyond God's ability to redeem. That's great hope for me. That the things that we might suffer in this life, that they are not above God's ability and His power to redeem those things. And a story like Hannah's reminds us that God is not indifferent, that He's not callous to our sufferings. No, God inspired a book like this. And though God reigns over our suffering, God does not rejoice in the suffering of its, of, of its creation. In this story, God is the only one. He's the only one who saw every single tear that Hannah cried. He's the only one who understood perfectly Hannah's sorrow. You know, in a congregation our size, undoubtedly there are women who are affected uh, by this, who know H Hannah's pain firsthand, the pain of childlessness. It, it affects men too, but, but it affects women uniquely. And this passage, it recognizes that Hannah, in the midst of her sorrow, had no answers as to why. And oftentimes, neither will you. But what this passage makes clear is that it is not wrong for you to grieve. It is not wrong for Christians to grieve at all. You know, for good reasons, Christians often emphasize all the good that God has done for us. And we should. It, it, it is right to do that. And yet, there is a place in this fallen world for us to grieve, to grieve loss. To grieve our, our fallen bodies. You're not somehow a lesser Christian for doing so. You're not. In fact, it's that kind of honest grief that I think God uses to draw us closer to Himself. So the story picks up during one of these annual trips. We, we pick the story back up and they're making one of these trips, these painful uh, celebrations, if you can use that term. And Penaniah has once again provoked Hannah to weeping. And so after the meal, Hannah makes her way to the tabernacle, and she's just in sorrow. And in her sorrow, Hannah prays to God. Now, I don't know what your idea of prayer is like. Excuse me. But, but this passage, it gives us a sense of the deep honesty and, and anguish in, in, of Hannah's prayer. In verse 10, it says, In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. In verses 15 and 16 it says, I was pouring out my soul to the Lord, praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Far, far from, from this prayer being some spiritual act, some, some just you know, habit that she's developed, Hannah bears her soul before God. This couldn't have been the first time that Hannah had, had prayed to God for a child, but here she's reached a new place of desperation. There seems to be a new angst, a, a new... Uh, uh, just an, a new desperation in, in Hannah's tone. In fact, let's just read it in verse 10. It says, in her deep anguish. Notice how the writer puts it. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me. And not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. 
Now there's no doubt about it, there's no question that Hannah's desperation is tied to her inability to have children. And yet part of that anguish is wondering, God, where are you? Where, where are you at in the midst of all of this? God, do you hear me? Have you forgotten me? Do you even know that I exist? Which is why, that she, why she prays the way that she does. Verse 11, she says, Lord Almighty, Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery, and what? Remember me. And not forget your servant. Hannah's prayer was for a son, yes, but, but even more it was for God Himself. That, that God would show that He had not forgotten her, that, that, he, that He sees her misery, that He knows her, that He remembers her, that He loves her. So, and, and because of that, she, she prays so much in that way that she's willing to make a vow. That, that if God would give her a son, she will, she will give him up. She will devote him all of his life to the Lord's work. She will set him apart for this. She, she invokes a Nazarite vow, meaning that, that he would never cut his hair. That a razor would never touch his head. I'm glad my mom didn't make that vow. Uh, yeah, exactly. For, for Samuel to be set apart, the, this son to be set apart like this, it means that he will not inherit his father's wealth, his father's business. He, he won't be around to defend Hannah in her old age to take care of her. Hannah will still be sitting alone when Peninnah comes at, at her, when Peninnah comes to provoke, provoke her. And Hannah isn't concerned whether, whether her son's ever going to be rich or famous or, or used powerfully by God. As far as she's concerned, if he's just a, a, an obscure tabernacle servant for the rest of his life, she's devoting him to God. Because the point of her prayer is not so much for a son, but, but for God. Would he remember her? And Hannah, in this moment of prayer, in this moment of anguish and bitterness and, and just desperation, she's, she's so overcome with sorrow that she doesn't notice that Eli, the high priest, is, is in the tabernacle. And apparently, Eli was quite used to chasing drunk men and women out of the tabernacle after they had been to celebrate, which gives you a little bit of an idea about Israel's spiritual condition at that time. But he sees Hannah praying, and he just assumes that she's been up here celebrating this feast, and she's drunk. And yet, impressively, Hannah responds with gentleness rather than anger. I just wonder, how often do we justify our anger or our impatience because of our suffering? We're, we're hurting, we're upset about stuff, we're, we just feel like everything's going against us, and so we, we're, we're quick to act out in anger. We're quick to lose our patience with people because, because of our hurt. Here, Hannah, we would understand if she responded that way, but she doesn't. She explains to Eli, the, the high priest, her sorrow and how she was praying to God. And so Eli offers her a word of, of blessing, of assurance. And notice down in verse 18 that, that nothing has changed in one sense. Nothing physically has changed anyway. But, but as Hannah has poured her heart out before God and she's been comforted and reassured by Eli, she's no longer downcast. In fact, verse 18 says, she said, May your servant, talking to Eli, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went on her way and she ate something. And her face was no longer downcast. There's something life-changing that takes place that goes even beyond our circumstances when we are able to pour our hearts out before God. When we come to God in those, in those tender and raw and honest moments, there's something that, that is just life-changing that takes place there. And I think the thing that probably ought to surprise us about this passage is, is simply the fact of prayer. If you've never prayed before, this passage presents a great encouragement to you. 
That there's a God out there. That there's a God who put all of the galaxies in place. Who, who put every star in the sky in its place. Who put the moon and the sun in its place. Who, who, who tells the, the ocean waters how far it can come onto the shore. There's a God out there. And He reigns over all of the world. Over all of the nations. A God who is sovereign over every single meticulous detail and event in this world. And not only does He know all about everything that happens in this world, but He knows all about you. And He cares for you. And prayer is simply talking to God. It's not about fancy religious language. It's it's not about a particular form of words. It's not about a certain length of prayer. No, prayer is simply pouring our hearts out before God. It is speaking to God from the heart. It is talking to to God just as you are using your words, your thoughts, confessing your needs and your desires. And I think the prayer that God loves the most, other than kids' prayers, because I, I think there's something special about kids' prayers, and I think he hears those prayers maybe more than he hears adults' prayers. I, that's, I can't prove that anywhere in the Bible, okay? That's just my opinion. But I think, I think the prayer that God loves to hear the most are honest prayers, where, where we're not trying to hide our troubles from him, where we're not trying to hide our fears and our sins, but, but we're coming to God just as we are, which means that prayer is not simply for religious people. Okay, prayer is not simply for religious people. Prayer is for desperate people. Even if this is your first time at church, you too can pray to God. And I think the temptation for those of us who have been Christians for a long time is to merely let prayer be an activity that we do. A box that we check. Okay, I said my prayers this morning. I said my prayer before mealtime. I said my prayer before bed. I've checked all the boxes. It's something that we do that we can pat ourselves on the back about. And I'm not, I'm not saying that being disciplined in prayer is not helpful. It certainly is. But so often that, that discipline is, is a reminder of my need for prayer. But just because it's planned doesn't mean that it's from the heart. But notice this. Notice that Hannah was comforted after she prayed. Prayer is not valuable because it's how we get stuff from God. Now, prayer is valuable in and of itself because in it we turn to God, who turns out to be our greatest treasure. We, we go through our days and our troubles, and, and we're surrounded by troubles, and these troubles, they challenge our faith in God. I mean, I don't know about you, but there have been moments in my life where, where really I would call them faith crisis, where something terrible, tragic has happened, and, and the question is, God, where are you? God, do you really love me? God, if you love me, how could you let this happen? Is the gospel even still true for me because of this? Does God care about my suffering? Has God forgotten me? And these doubts, perhaps even more than our circumstances, can produce deep bitterness and hopelessness. But but when we dare to pray, even in the act of prayer, we are acting out in faith. We are acting out our faith. We are rejecting those lies that, uh, that, that, this, that Satan whispers to us. We're, and we're aligning ourselves to the truth that is out there. That there is a God out there who loves us, who cares about us, who knows us by name. And He has not abandoned us. And instead, He can redeem our suffering. Hannah cries out to God. And then she walks away comforted because in that prayer she realized, this is what I really believe. That God hasn't abandoned me. That God still cares for me. My, my sorrows may, may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. The, the, the very act of prayer itself is a gift from God. The, the God who is sovereign over all of your troubles, who has allowed all of them into your life in order that you might turn to Him in prayer. In order that you might not no longer think that you're self-sufficient, but that you would depend wholeheartedly on Him. We often say something that I think is very foolish. 
Um, we usually say it as a comfort meaning well. We, we intend it to, to encourage somebody. But we say things, we say something like, God will never give you more than you can handle. You've probably heard that before. You've probably, you maybe even said it, but you, you've certainly probably heard it or, or heard it said to somebody. And it, it, it's a nice sentiment. It, it is a nice sentiment. But there is not a single shred of truth in that statement. There's not a single shred of truth in that statement because if that statement were true that God would never give us anything more than we could handle, we wouldn't need God. We would be completely self-sufficient, completely dependent on ourselves. The reality is that most of the troubles and circumstances that we face in our life are things that we shouldn't handle on our own. That we were not meant to carry on our own. Instead, we were, we were designed to bring those and turn those over to God. Because it is more than we can handle. But it's not more than He can handle. And even though Hannah is comforted by prayer, the story doesn't end there. And I think that's a good thing because if the story ends here, we're left with Hannah just being inwardly comforted in the midst of her trouble. And that would be an incomplete picture of the salvation that God brings. Because the salvation that God brings isn't, isn't one that, where we just find inner peace, that we find some inner calmness and we feel good about ourselves. It, it's, not, it's not so that we can attain some inner higher knowledge or consciousness. No, we serve a God who acts in time and in space and in reality on behalf of those who cry out to Him. And just as God remembered Noah and just as God had remembered His covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God now remembers Hannah. And it's not that God has a bad memory, okay? It's not that His memory's faulty. This is just language that indicates that God is about to work out His unfolding purpose. God likes to use the unlikely, the impossible, because this is how God gets the most glory. And God opens up Hannah's womb. And she conceives and she gives birth to a child. Can you imagine Hannah's joy in that moment when she finally gives birth to a son? You remember back in Genesis when Sarah, Sarah gives birth to, to a son? It says that she laughed. And, and I bet Hannah laughed too. And in the midst of her joy, she's not forgotten how this happens. She names her son Samuel, a reminder that, that this is a gift from the Lord. And now the time has come to go back to Shiloh for, for the annual sacrifice, for the annual feast. And finally, the, the moment's here. Here's the chance for Hannah to go and to not be alone. Here's, here's her chance to shut Penanai up once and for good, to be vindicated, to have her shame removed. But, but she decides not to go this time. Why not? Well, we see the answer down in verse 21. She's not forgotten her vow. This is what verse 21 says. When her husband Elkanah went up with all of his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and I will present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. She knows that Samuel does not belong to her. Her, her son does not exist to vindicate her own pride. He, do, he doesn't exist to boost her own self-esteem. No, he belongs to God. And the next time that she's going to return to Shiloh, it will be to devote her son Samuel to the Lord forever. And amazingly, and I say amazingly because Elkanah gets it right here. He's supportive. He, he, he goes along with it. And, and I can't imagine that, that they would have been willing to do this had they not gone through everything else that they had already gone through. The, the troubles that they had gone through had led them to a point where they were strong enough in their faith to be able to carry through with this commitment, this vow that they had made. And, and yet, in, in God's strange and wise providence, 
He brought them through all of those sorrows and joys so that they might serve him in that way. And I just want to point that out to you as encouragement to you, that whatever sorrows and trials and circumstances that you might be going through right now, God may be using those to bring you to a point where you're going to be able to serve him because of those. That you're going to be able to look back on, on, on situations and, and, and maybe a, a, a season of life and say, you know, I would never want to go through that again. I would never want my, my family, I would never want my kids to go through that. I wouldn't even want my worst enemy to go through that. But because of what I've gone through, my faith is at a point where I can serve God in this way because of it. And so Hannah is to that point. You know, Hannah could have hidden her vow from Elkanah. Nobody heard her pray. Nobody uh, heard her make a vow to God. Eli thought she was drunk. And, and God had finally given her a son. And all her life she had prayed for a son. It would, nobody in this room would have batted an eye if she had said, you know what, I'm not going to keep my vow. I'm going to keep my son. Nobody would, ha- nobody would have questioned that, would they? And yet, to our astonishment, we don't get any sense of reluctance from, from Hannah. Just the opposite. In fact, she plans to care for Samuel not until he's a teenager, not until he's you know, 8, 9, 10 years old, but until he's weaned. And in that culture, a child was weaned at the age of 2 or 3. We, we might have thought that the whole weaning, weaning thing would be a delay tactic, but we see in verse 24 it says, After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. In other words, when Samuel was, was ready, she doesn't wait until the next annual family trip. She takes him immediately. As soon as he is, is old enough, she is resolved to go. She's not waiting any longer to fulfill the vow that she's made. She's not bringing a three-year-old bull, but she's literally bringing three bulls with her and all of the other ingredients for, for a sacrificial feast. In other words, this was a rich, sacri- uh, rich sacrifice of thanksgiving. Hannah is not doing this begrudgingly. And yet all of those sacrifices, that she, the stuff that she takes with her to sacrifice, it pales in comparison of giving and her giving of Samuel. This is the child that she has asked for, that she has prayed for so long for, that she's been so desperate to have. And now the Lord has granted that and has given her this son. And she's going to in turn give him to the Lord, to devote him for his entire life to to serve the Lord. And so Elkanah and Hannah, they're going to make this trip, and soon they're going to go back home. And Samuel, he's going to remain there in Shiloh, ministering before the Lord under the, the priest of Eli. And though at this point no one could have predicted what would happen, no one could foresee what what kind of man Samuel was going to grow into, nobody could know that Samuel was going to grow up to be a mighty leader, the last judge of Israel to be, uh, he would be the one who would usher in the greatest king of Israel that they had ever known. Nobody could have predicted that. But it all happened because of one woman's faithfulness. So what's the point of this story? You're probably asking that right now. What's the point? Is it simply that if we pray hard enough that God will give us whatever we want? No. Hannah's response clearly shows that in in the end, Samuel was not the point of her joy. Samuel, the son that she had prayed for, was not the source of of her joy. As, As Hannah had reflected on how God had answered her prayers, on how God had worked this amazing reversal, bringing vindication uh, out of her shame, bringing low those who are proud, acting for her salvation, uh, she she sees that her story is really just a microcosm of how God will act in the history uh, of the world to save His people, to save the poor and to save the needy, those who cry out to Him. In other words... Hannah's story is simply pointing us to the Father. 
You can read all about it in chapter 2 in, in Hannah's prayer, why Hannah was able to, to do what she did, but only because in all that took place, Hannah came to be in awe of the God who loves her and the God that would ultimately bring about her, her full salvation. In the end, her joy was not Samuel. Her joy was in the Lord. I just want to tell you that no matter where you're at this morning, this is a God that you can know yourself. That you can know personally. Because, because Hannah understood that her experience was, was only a shadow that pointed to a greater salvation that, that was to, to come later. And this salvation would come far beyond what Hannah or anybody else for that matter could have ever imagined. We are those who are trapped in, in, in a fallen world, surrounded by enemies, afflicted by suffering, plagued by our own sinful hearts. We are those who have wandered away from God and are heading toward eternal death and separation from God. But the amazing news, and this is the amazing news of Christmas, this is the amazing news of Easter, this is really just the amazing news of the gospel, is that God has provided a son. Not Samuel. Not just any son. But that God had provided His own son. Jesus, the Son of God, was given to us. Yes, Hannah devoted Samuel to the priesthood. And God did something far more radical, far more unthinkable, far more unfathomable. He devoted His Son to our humanity. Listen, the salvation that you need the most fundamentally is not a change in your circumstances, okay? It's not. It's not just a subjective inner peace it, that, that gives you some, some good feeling. That, that's not the salvation that you need the most. It is The salvation that you need the most is knowing that, know, to know God rightly and to be restored to a right relationship with Him. It is to know that your sins can be forgiven and that you are accepted and that you are loved by God and that it's possible even today if we'll abandon our self-righteousness, if we'll get rid of our self-sufficiency and we will place our trust wholly and completely in Christ. Look, God may never change your circumstances in this life. He might not. But He promises to change you. And what a dramatic transformation that we see here in Hannah. As someone who, who just caught a glimpse, just caught a glimpse of God's salvation. She knows that her hope is not in herself or in how Elkanah or Peninnah, how they treat her, or even in how many children she would have, but ultimately it's in God. And because of her, her faith is in God, she's able to act in radical obedience. In the midst of all of our troubles that this, that this Christmas season might bring, in the midst of all of our troubles that we might be reminded of, this is our hope. This is our hope that in Christ we are, we are forgiven. That there is, there is joy that comes in knowing Him. When, when Longfellow heard the Christmas bells in 1863, he reflected on the circumstances of the broken world that he lived in, all of his troubles. And yet in the midst of that, he recognized an even deeper reality. That God had not forgotten His people. That God had acted to save. There is a hope that is deeper than all of the brokenness that we find in this world. And so we pen this last verse. He writes this. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Our troubles today, whatever they might be, they, they might mock 
our hope. They, they might, um, Satan may think that he has stamped out whatever good we might find in this life, but the day will soon come. It may not be today for you, but the day will soon come when God will end all of our troubles, where the wrong will fail, the right prevail, and there will be peace on earth, goodwill to men. Let me pray for us.